Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Poets' Corner, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner of In Defense of Christianity. This segment is from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1, Canto 5, Episode 14. Podcast 128 is entitled Escape from the House of Pride. In last week's episode, Duvessa and Erebus, or Knight, take the comatose body of Sans Joy, who is near death from the sword of the Red Cross Knight, deep into the recesses of hell to be healed. Erebus, Queen of Darkness, vows vengeance against the Red Cross Knight for killing her nephews. They must bypass Cerberus, the Hound of Hades, a three-headed monster who guards the gates of hell and doesn't allow anyone to leave. As they travel through hell, they meet those who are suffering in endless torment. There was Ixion, turned on a wheel for daring tempt the Queen of Heaven to sin, and Sisyphus, and huge round stone did reel against and heal, knee nigh from labor lin. There thirsty Tantalus hung by the chin, and Titius fed a vulture on his maw, Typhaeus' joints were stretched on a gin. Theseus condemned to endless sloth by law, and fifty sisters' water in leaky vessels draw. Astonished at the visitors, the once great men and women of the earth, now condemned by the gods suffering in hell, stop what they are doing. Momentarily released from suffering and stare at hideous night and the witch Duessa. Finally, they arrive at a deep, dark cavern where Aesculapius was bound in chains. Aesculapius was the god of medicine, killed by Zeus for postponing death and healing diseases among mankind. They all beholding worldly whites in place leave off their work, unmindful of their smart to gaze on them, who forth by them do pace till they become unto the furthest part. Where was a cave wrought by wondrous art, deep, dark, uneasy, doleful, comfortless, in which sad Esculapius, far apart, imprisoned, was in chains remediless. For that Hippolytus' rent course he did redress. They meet Hippolytus, son of Theseus, Duke of Athens, and his Amazon wife, Hippolyta. They are very familiar to those of you who are fans of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. However, here, Theseus, a tyrant, is not governed by rule of law but by revenge against his injured son. Their son, Hippolytus, who had taken an oath of chastity, was falsely accused of rape by Phaedra, his stepmother, once wife of Theseus, who Hippolytus spurned. The Greeks are brilliant at understanding human nature, which is illustrated by their fantastic tales. The sad story of the innocent Hippolytus shows how quickly love can turn to hate. Hippolytus, a jolly huntsman, was that wand in chariot chase, the foaming boar. He all his peers in beauty did surpass, but ladies' love as loss of time forbore, 
his wanton stepdame loved him the more. But when she saw her offer sweets refused, her love she turned to hate, and him before his father fierce of treason false accused, and with her jealous terms his open ears abused. The entire story of incestuous love is too convoluted to cover here. Hippolytus, at the behest of his own father Theseus, is killed by Poseidon, who frightens his horses and causes him to wreck. Who, all in rage, his sea-god sire besought some cursed vengeance on his son to cast. From surging gulf, two monsters straight were brought with dread whereof, his chasing steeds aghast, both chariot swift and huntsman overcast. His goodly corpse on ragged cliffs he rent was quite dismembered, and his members chased scattered on every mountain, as he went that of Hippolytus was left no monument. Phaedra, seeing that she had caused the death of Hippolytus, commits suicide with a wretched knife. She leaves a note declaring her son to be innocent. Theseus, learning that he had been betrayed by Phaedra, is devastated that he caused the death of his son. He brought Aesculapius, who healed his son, Hippolytus. His cruel stepdame, seeing what was done, her wicked days with wretched knife did end. In death, avowing the innocence of her son, which hearing his rash sire began to rent his hair and hasty tongue that did offend. Though gathering up the relics of his smart by Diane's means, who was Hippolytus' friend, them brought to Esculpe that by his art did heal them all again and joined every part. Because Esculape uses his arts to heal Hippolytus, he was killed by Zeus for arresting death and diseases. The message is, as with many of the curses, you cannot go against the will of the gods, even when it is for doing good. You cannot bypass fate. It brings disorder to the universe. For me, one of the tremendous rewards of studying Greek literature and mythology is their ever-present questioning of the gods. Greek gods are imperfect, and because they have such power, they're able to satisfy every whim which causes enormous suffering. The greatest paradox in Christian theology is the balance between justice and mercy. Why, for example, did Christ have to die for our sins? Why couldn't Elohim simply forgive sins without sacrificing his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ? Most, if not all, idol-worshipping nations have a god of all gods. For the Greek mind, it was Zeus. Greek mythology shows a god of justice without mercy. Why, for example, did Zeus kill Aesculapius for bringing medicine to man? Why did Zeus condemn Prometheus to eternal torment for bringing light to man? Zeus cannot deny Aesculapius' immortality, therefore he condemned Aesculapius to hell forever. Aesculapius gave medicine to man but his medicinal salves cannot restore his own health, nor quench the heavenly fire that rages in him forever. Such wondrous science in man's wit to reign when Jove advised that could the dead revive, and fates expire could renew again of endless life, he might him not deprive, but unto hell did thrust him down alive, with flashing thunderbolt he wounded sore. Where long remaining he did always strive himself with salves to health for to restore, and slack the heavenly fire that raged evermore.
Finally, Duvesta and Ancient Knight arrive and present the comatose body of Sans Joy to Aesculapius to be healed. It is because of Aesculapius that they had to make the journey into the depths of hell. There, Ancient Knight arriving, did alight from her nigh-weary wane, and in her arms to Aesculapius brought the wounded knight, whom having softly disarrayed of arms to Gan to discover all his harms, beseeching him with prayer and with praise. If either salves or oils or herbs or charms or foredone weight from door of death might raise, he would at her request prolong her nephew's days. Aesculapius tells Knight that her request is in vain. He recounts his own eternal punishment for bringing medicine to man. He asks if Knight can overturn the wrath of thunder and Jove. Ah, dame, quoth he, thou temptest me in vain to dare the thing which daily yet I rue, and the old cause of my continued pain with like attempts to like and to renew. Is not enough that thrust from heaven do hear endless penance for one fault I pay, but that redouble crime with vengeance new thou biddest me to eke. Can night defray the wrath of thundering Jove that rules both night and day? Knight argues that although Aesculapius has lost all hope of heaven, at least his eternal fame will be as great as his eternal torment. Besides, what more can Zeus do than he has already done? His torment is already so painful it can never increase, so why not increase his fame? She promises that the deed will be done in the darkness of night. That is an ironic and strange argument, which actually sounds very logical if it weren't so bizarrely comical. Not so, quoth she. But sitteth that heaven king from hope of heaven hath thee excluded quite. Why fearest thou that canst not hope for thing? And fearest not the more thee hurtin might now in the power of everlasting night? Go to then, O thou far-renowned son of great Apollo, show thy famous might in medicine that else hath to thee won great pains and greater praise, both never to be done. Night succeeded in her argument. Aesculapius works his magic and heals Sans Joy. Sans Joy remains with the doctor in hell while Duessa and Night leave. It is worthy to note here that to the Greek mind, hell is merely a prison where those who fall under the wrath of God are prevented from escaping, while they suffer eternal torment tailored to their sins by the gods. In other words, Duessa and Knight are visiting in hell, but they suffer no torment, for they are not yet dead, and have not been condemned by the gods. Her words prevailed, and then the learned leech his cunning hand gan to his wounds to lay, and all things else that which his art did teach, which having seen, from thence arose away the mother of dread darkness. And let stay a burglar son there in the leech's cure, and back returning took her wanton way. To run her timely race while Phoebus pure, in western waves his weary wagon did recure. Duessa and Knight leave hell. Duessa then leaves Knight and returns to the palace of the queen in the house of pride. She discovered that the Red Cross Knight had left, even though his wounds were not completely healed. The dwarf had discovered a horrible thing. In the dungeon of the House of Pride, huge numbers of people were imprisoned and tortured, their cries ceaseless. 
The false Duessa, leaving noyous night, returned to stately palace of Dame Pride, where when she came, she found the fairy knight departed thence, albe his wounds wide, not thoroughly healed, unready were to ride. Good cause he had to hasten thence away, for on a day his wary dwarf had spied, where in a dungeon, deep, huge numbers lay of captive wretched thralls that wailed night and day. The gruesome sight was atrocious, unimaginable, and incomprehensible. The prisoners had mortgaged their lives to covetousness and wanton riots. The Queen of Pride was provoked with wrath and filled with envy. Therefore, she condemned them to her merciless dungeon until their death. In other words, they were given life in prison for practicing the very arts that she taught. The Queen of the House of Pride was a pitiless tyrant. Obviously, Spencer is showing the consequences of violating the seven deadly sins. Though the seven deadly sins were prayed in the streets, those who practiced them in the House of Pride became victims of the evil self-appointed queen. Clearly, she symbolizes Satan, who torments his own followers for doing the very things he tempts them to do. A rueful sight, as could be seen with eye, of whom he learned, had in secret wise, the hidden cause of their captivity, how mortgaging their lives to covetous, through wasteful pride and wanton riotous, they were by law of that proud tyrannicus. Provoked with wrath and envy's false surmise, condemned to that dungeon merciless, where they should live in woe and die in wretchedness. In the dungeon which counterfeits hell were some of the great dictators of the earth, such as the king of Babylon, the king of Lydia, and the king of Syria, who also represent pride. There was the great proud king of Babylon that would compel all nations to adore and him as only God to call upon, till through celestial doom thrown out of door, into an O'Shea he was transformed of yore. There also was King Croesus, that enhanced his heart too high through his great riches store, and proud Antiochus, the which advanced his curse against God, and on his altars danced. Also tortured in the dungeon of the House of Pride were Nimrod, the mighty hunter, Ninus, the founder of Nineveh, and Alexander the Great. And them long time before, great Nimrod was that first the world with sword and fire wayred, and after him old Ninus far did pass in princely pomp of all the world obeyed. There also was that mighty monarch laid low under all, Yet above all in pride, the name of native sire did foul upbraid, and would as Ammon's son be magnified till scorned of God, and man a shameful death he died. Those once great kings were thrown together, as Spencer wrote, like the carcasses of beasts in a butcher's stall, along with Romulus, founder of Rome, Tarquin, the last king of Rome, and others including Hannibal and Julius Caesar. All these together in one heap were thrown like carcasses of beasts in butcher's stall, and in another corner wide were strewn the antique ruins of Roman's fall. Great Romulus, the grandsire of them all, proud Tarquin and the two loudly Lentulus, 
stout Scipio and stubborn Hannibal, ambitious Scylla and stern Marius, high Caesar, great Pompey, and fierce Antonius. But it wasn't just men. Spencer said, amongst these mighty men were women mixed. He describes them as proud, vain, and neglectful of their office as women. Spencer was not politically correct. He mentioned the queen of Assyria, the adulterous wife of Proteus, and the high-minded Cleopatra. But there were thousands more in the dungeon. Amongst these mighty men were women mixed, proud women, vain, forgetful of their yoke, the proud Cermiramus, whose sides transfixed with sun's own blade. Her foul reproaches spoke. Fair Stenovia, that herself did choke with willful cord for wanting of her will. High-minded Cleopatra, that with stroke of asp sting herself did stoutly kill, and thousands more the like that did that dungeon fill. Those in the dungeon were also guilty of wasting their wealth, of idleness, of pretentious pomp, of wanton play, and of thriftless hours, all part of the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, wrath, greed, and sloth. Besides the endless routs of wretched thralls which thither were assembled day by day, from all the world after their woeful falls through wicked pride and wasted wealth's decay. But most of all, which in the dungeons lay, fell from high princes' courts or lady bowers, where they, in idle pomp or wanton play, consumed, had their goods, and thriftless hours, and lastly thrown themselves into these heavy stowers. The dwarf painted such a painful picture of those in the dungeon that the Red Cross Knight decided he could no longer stay in the hateful house of pride. Spencer does a masterful job of showing the subtlety and consequences of evil. Above the dungeon, the seven deadly sins were paraded through the streets of the house of pride, everyone cheering, everyone happy, and everyone celebrating. However, beneath the streets in the dark dungeon, Spencer shows the horrible misery that resulted whose case, when as the careful dwarf had told and made a sample of the mournful sight unto his master, he no longer would there dwell in peril of like painful plight, but early rose and ere the dawning light discovered had the world to heaven wide. He by a privy postern took his flight, that of no envious eye he mote be spied, for doubtless Death ensued if any hymns descried. There were so many dead bodies of murdered men that the dwarf could barely escape the dungeon. There were no funerals and no one to grieve the dead. This symbolized the fall of the house of pride, which of course is described by John in the book of Revelation as the fall of Babylon in a day. Scarce could he footing find in that foul way, for many courses, like a great lay stall of murdered men, which therein strode lay without remorse or decent funeral, which all through that great prince's pride did fall and came to shameful end, and then beside forth riding underneath the castle wall, a dunghill of dead carcasses he spied, the dreadful spectacle of that sad house of pride. It is revealing that it was the dwarf and not the Red Cross Knight who discovered the dungeon. 
The Red Cross Knight is still under the spell of Duessa. He had become a hero in the House of Pride, a source of entertainment to the prideful crowd by defeating Sans Joy in a public duel. He showed deference to the Queen. He cannot see that Queen Pride, like Duessa, is false. At first, the Red Cross Knight abhorred the House of Pride, but little by little he was becoming part of it. If it had not been for the dwarf, he would have remained in the House of Pride and undoubtedly himself been imprisoned in the dungeon where no one escaped. Though he was unaware, he was a long way from fulfilling his mission to become a man of holiness and defeat the dreadful dragon. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.